Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is John Van Lunen, and you are listening to Treasures of the Outer Banks, episode 15. In this episode, I have Angel Corey, who's a writer from Manio. She has put out two books, her first book called Mantio, a Roanoke Island town, and her most recent book, which was put out about a year and a half ago, is Between Tides. It's kind of a love story. And probably not a book I would pick up first, but I heard the backstory about this book and I had to get it. And when I dove into it, uh, it's, it's amazing writing. It's a very cool story. And when you know the backstory, it, it kind of makes it even more interesting. And it's set, most, most of the story is set locally on the Outer Banks, which makes it even more interesting. The book has four main characters. Uh, Gil is the father. Uh, who eventually has two families, one in Cape Cod and one on the Outer Banks. And Gilly is his youngest daughter. He had Gilly when he was, Gilly was born when Gil was 69 years old. And he passed away. Well, I don't want to give it all away. But anyway, Maud is his wife in Manio. And Blythe is his wife in Cape Cod. And this is based on a true story. The names were changed for privacy reasons because the name is still strong on the Outer Banks and the author, Angel Corey, wanted to protect their privacy and and not make a a big show out of it. I did not want this to be a book club type of interview because if I, I tell you, I could have just pieced down the entire story and, and we would have had a recording that was three hours long just talking about all the ins and outs. She has, she uses a lot of um, symbolism. She uses a lot of foreshadowing and it's, it's kind of a, a, a little work of art. And um, I didn't want it. I didn't want the interview to be that. I didn't want the interview to be all about the story. I was really fascinated with the backstory and honestly, that's what drew my attention to this book in the first place. So I thought I'd just do something simple and stick with that. The interesting thing that Angel told me during the interview is that she wrote this book for herself. And then at some point, somebody told her, you need to publish this thing. And so she went back, changed a few things around, polished it up. And uh, there you go. Another interesting thing about this book is that she weaves a lot of true events into the story. And in fact, she also uh, weaves in some quotes, some common sayings for the day, and that type of thing. But the other thing that I really uh, admired about this book was just the picture she paints of the Outer Banks. Now, if you know me, I used to own Kitty Hawk Water Sports at Milepost 16 in Agshead. I was in the water a lot. And I know the waters of the, of the uh, Sound, the Roanoke Sound, pretty well. Uh, I've been in John's Ditch, uh, all over Shallowback Bay, um, down to the inlet a little bit. So I kind of know the waters, and I just know the feel and the and the motion and all that stuff. And and she just paints a great picture of, of all that stuff. So uh, if if you're from the Outer Banks, or you know the Outer Banks, or you enjoy the Outer Banks, I think you'll enjoy this story. Another thing is. So the main character, well, one of the main characters, Gilly, the daughter, she uh, pops up on the Outer Banks about 20 years ago, and she became friends with Angel. Um, They started talking. Angel learned more about the story, learned more about the family, uh, just learned a lot. And for about 10 years, uh, roughly 10 years, they just were 
good friends, sharing stories, and Angel was just socking all this information away. I think it was 2011, uh, the Gilly, one of the, the, you know, the daughter, she passes away, and it was roughly another 10 years before this book was made. So there's, obviously it was a long process, obviously it was an emotional process because she had had such a deep relationship with this character. Um, it's, it's just kind of a, a fascinating story in my mind. You can pick up Angel's book at uh, pretty much all of the local bookstores around here. Um, my personal favorite is Downtown Books in Manio. You can also check out Angel on her website, angelcory.com. That's all one word, Angel Corey, and Corey is spelled K-H-O-U-R-Y.com. So sit back, relax, and I think you'll enjoy this talk with Angel Corey. And so she pays no attention, but when he doesn't come home for a month and more, she sails across Shalabag Bay and the little skiff they built together. She aims for Wanchi's Wharf, where she intends to put two orange crushes on his account before sailing on to the hunt club at Body Island. The tide sweeps her across the sound and up into a twist of marsh. Her skiff parts the salt creek called Maggie's Drawers, where the reedy banks press inward like two defiant knees and the wind rears back from the sulfurous stink of marsh gas. She knows which curves of the creek to hug, working her tiller to find an inch or two of deeper water, but the tide is high and swift and it thrusts her bow into a thatch of marsh. Her bottom stuck fast in oozy black mud that six hours before was hard baked and scuttled with cracks as it will be again come six hours later. Thank you. Yeah. And that's Angel Corey and she's reading from her book, Between Times. I appreciate you doing that for me. And I tell you that, that paragraph paints a picture for me because I've worked on those waters for 20, well, down here 15 years. And I know that black oozy mud on the bottom of the sound. And I know some of those ditches and creeks. And uh, it's, it's definitely, I love, besides the backstory, just the description of this area is, is just fantastic. I have to ask you, my first question though is, what is Maggie's Drawers? Is it Maggie's Drawers? Maggie's I've, Drawers. I've, I've been on, I know John's Ditch and I know Shalabag Bay. I've never heard of Maggie's Drawers. So Maggie's Drawers and John's Ditch are near, near, near each other. Okay. And they are basically shortcuts through the marsh from Manio to Wanchi's. Do you think it still exists or is it? Yes. Um, okay. Yeah. It's still there. Yeah. All right. And maybe it's just one of those branches off or something like that. And, uh. Yeah, they, they change a little bit, but yes. okay. Um, so let's see. In your afterward, uh, and, and I mentioned to people, you might want to consider, not you, but the readers may want to consider reading the afterward first because it does a good job of explaining a lot of this stuff. Um, and I know you were introduced to one of the sisters early on. You, uh, your dad introduced you to an eccentric hotel manager or owner on the beach? Yes, my uncle, uh, who was eccentric himself, okay. and therefore attracted to other eccentric people, as am I, um, <laughs> he always stayed at the Wilbur and Orville Wright, and he took me in the office to meet this woman he thought was so interesting. Yeah. And, um, and she ended up becoming my next door neighbor for a while here in Manio. Okay. So you got to know him pretty well. Mm -hmm. 
And by the way, before we get too far into this, I'm going to say that we are not going to use their real names. Um, Gilly is not Gilly's really na real name and neither is Gil, but that's what we're going to go with from here on out for privacy reasons. And that's okay. So you met the sister, you got to know the sister. Um, was this sister bitter at all about her father? So I never really talked to that sister about uh, her family. She, she would talk to me about uh, when she lived down the banks um, and certainly some of the life-saving uh, stories that, that were her family were a big part of. But, but I never knew anything about her father or uh, mother from her. Right. And it was when I was researching the book on Manio, and I had an event at the History Center and asked people to help me identify photos or bring photos. Mm -hmm. And this very petite, older woman, turns out she was 80. Uh, she had been away from Manio for 60 years and had moved back, and she came in with photos. And immediately I recognized the man in the picture because I had started a separate file on him right because I kept coming across things about him when I was researching uh, the Hotel Roanoke and the Tranquil House and so forth and so um, I really didn't know why I was stashing things away outside right. of the parameters of the Manio book but anyway so there's this lady with this picture and she said this is my father and I'm really bad at math, <laughs> and I'm thinking he was born in 1849. I'm not really sure. Are you just like confused? Right. <laughs> anyway, she said she was uh, he was 69 years old when she was born. Wow. And so we immediately headed off, and um, she was very interested in what had happened in Manio since she had been gone and very excited about the revitalization of the town. And we just had a lot of things that we enjoyed talking about. Um, mostly, I talked to her about her own history because she was so amazing. Yeah. She was a volunteer in the Red Cross in World War II and had gotten a Bronze Star. And so I mostly was talking to her about her World War II adventures. And, now, and that's in the story, right? You wove that into the story. Yeah, and that was not in the book. The book was finished, and it made me sad that that part wasn't in there, but I didn't know how to do that, right. you know, fictionally, because of the timeline for the, for the novel. So I thought, well, if you do, uh, you can do flashbacks. I'm going to do a flash forward kind of thing right. and have the two women, uh, Gilly and the first wife up at Chatham, Blythe, have them imagining what might happen to her in the war, which actually is what happened yeah. to her in the yeah. war. Yeah, a flash forward. I get it now. Yeah. And so, you know, you talked about what she's like. Um was she bitter at all? Uh, no, she, she um, in fact, one time she cried and she said, you've given me my father because he was, she was six when he died and there was a lot of uh, family lore that I actually discovered was not true. 
you know, he was, they thought he was kicked out of the life-saving service uh, for refusing to go out on a wreck up at Chatham Beach. And he, that wasn't true. Um, and so she seemed to find great joy in talking about him and remembering him. She had always wanted to write a book about her father, and she was going to call it Between Tides because she had given me a newspaper article from the 30s talking about the Chatham Beach Hotel when it um, partly washed away and then it was demolished um, before the rest of it washed away. And the newspaper story talked about how her father had disappeared between tides and she thought that would be a great title for a book. And yeah. so she said, I give you my title. Nice. So she gave me her heart, she <laughs> gave me her love, she gave me um, so many great stories. Right. And uh, it seems like you, 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 when you created the, her character, you kind of gave some of her spunk, some of her enthusiasm, so to speak. Yeah, she was a very spunky person. <laughs> <laughs> she, one thing that we bonded over, we both had worked at the Coastland Times, uh, I worked she worked for Victor Meekins, and I worked for Francis Meekins, his son. Okay. And Victor was the Dare County Sheriff, and she was made his deputy. So, I mean, she was just, <laughs> she was amazing to me. Right. You know, she, she was a deputy sheriff, then she goes off to the war, and she's living in the, the uh, tent hospital, wow. tending to wounded soldiers, and her leg gets broken, and uh bombing and she refuses to be sent home Wow! Um, and comes up with this idea give me a, a cast like the Brits with the metal cleat on the bottom and so she got that I mean she refused to go home right that's amazing and did where was she for 60 years where was she living for 60 uh, years she um, married a college professor, so she lived in Ohio for many years, and then they retired to Florida, and when her husband died, then she moved back to Manny. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. And at what point, you did a lot of research for this story, yeah? I have uh, two filing cabinet drawers <laughs> of paper, and I have a database with about 600 records. Wow. Um, that is searchable. So I did a lot of research for the book. And then the other part of it, which uh, my late husband Daniel used to, I mean, he gave me a lot of freedom to write and to research, but I think at times he kind of wondered, you know, what is she doing? <laughs> uh, I f came across a word I had never heard in uh, one of Ann Carson's books, and it's the word is scopophilia, which means the love of gazing. And Guilty. And Yes, <laughs> absolutely. And I kind of got that from my grandfather, and I just like to look and observe things. And so a lot of the nature writing that's in the book are things that I've personally observed just from sitting on my pier or, yeah. you know, going to lunch through Maggie's drawers. Yeah. Uh, from Do you talk to some of the local fishermen and stuff like that? I mean, you seem to, you seem to have acquired a, a, a healthy education of the waters and how it's been worked. A lot of the Manio book, uh, the history of Manio, you know, I talked to Edward Etheridge and, 
am fascinated by how they talk, how they describe, how they get from here to there over the water. Yeah. It's really interesting to me. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I, when I was uh, writing for Outer Banks Magazine, I was supposed to go out on the trawl boat for two weeks. <laughs> and uh, I wasn't really that into it. I don't like fish. <laughs> and I think they're fishy smelling. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, um, it's not a cruise ship, I'm sure. No, and uh, it turned out Mikey Daniels called me the, it was bad weather, bad weather, and then finally he called and said, well, the, the boat's going out, but you're not going. And I said, why not? Oh, the wives don't want you to go. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so I had to write that story Virtually. without having been on a fishing boat. And so I think, I think you kind of learn you know, through interviewing people, yeah. which I did for the newspaper and then for Outer Banks Magazine. Um, uh, I think you learn how to absorb experiences that you haven't had yourself. Right. Um, and through your imagination, you just kind of go there. Right. Um, so you did a ton of research, and at some point, you just realized, you know, I, I just can't write the real story. I'm going to have to make this fiction. At what point do you decide to go uh, make it a fictional story? Uh, I was not trained as a writer. My major was uh, history, government, and sociology. And, you know, I didn't know how to write fiction. And I'd been a newspaper editor and Outer Banks magazine. So I you know, did the Manio book, The History of Manio. So my whole thing was to get it right. You know, what are the facts yeah. as best you can know them? Yeah. And so I was intimidated by the idea of making stuff up. I'm not a natural storyteller. I right. like to listen to people tell stories or read, you know. I mean, I've read a gazillion books in my life. and um but I didn't know how to write fiction, and my inclination was to try my hand at creative nonfiction um, because the true story was so amazing. Yeah. But then I thought, well, the story is laid out for me, and really the only thing that is not known is why he went back and forth between uh, Cape Cod and Cape Hatteras for five years before he finally decided to leave um, and essentially set up the very same life here yeah. that he had there. So why, you know, why is that? And the only way to answer that question, I thought, was through fiction. Yeah. And I thought, if I'm ever going to try to write oh, fiction, geez. this is Hang on a second. <laughs> I'm sorry. I meant to turn this off. That's okay. Unless you need to answer it. <laughs> I don't think so. Okay. So, right, it was the only way to, to do it. Um, well, let's see. I don't know why I thought of this, but... Did the, yeah, I'm sorry, I, found, I just remember the, I was going to ask you uh, if the woman, if his uh, Cape Cod wife, I was going to ask you if his Cape Cod wife knew about it, but I recall that you wrote, or even in the afterward, it's in the story, and in the afterward, 
she did come down to get him. <laughs> but there's, I guess there's some ambiguity of whether she dragged him or, you know, what, what. But I guess it's, the whole story is just kind of funny because she did come down to get him. And in the end, he just turned around and came back anyway, right? Right. Yeah, so I think the fact that she came to get him was pretty amazing because this was in the January of 1894 and it's hard to get here today <laughs> right. Right. and she and her niece who lived with her um, came down and took him back home That's and I, I don't know if he went willingly I don't know if he went reluctantly you know I made up what I think he you yeah know, yeah what his feelings were about it and sort of like shrugging of the shoulders like okay <laughs> you got me <laughs> so I, I have in my notes origination um, did we go over that already or did we do we want to dig into the story more or how you how you, uh, how Gilly kind of just brought it up did she just mention oh yeah by the way maybe you heard of my dad or did you find out that he had two families or something like that I didn't hear the um, phrase, the man with two families, until I went to Chatham for four days right. to do research and went to their equivalent of their Outer Banks History Center, the right. Atwood Museum. And the, um, the lady said, oh, I mean, I just said, do you have any information about this person? And she goes, oh, the man with two families. Like, yeah, people ask me about him every day. <laughs> You know, and there again, he was born in 1849, died in 1924. And so. And when you went up to Chatham, I mean, obviously, you get the access to all the research through their history department. Um, but also, isn't there just getting the lay of the land and, and seeing what it's like? You know, I mean, are, are you kind of comparing it a little bit to the Outer Banks to some degree? I mean,. I think uh, I think Gill certainly thought of it as comparable. I think he saw in the Outer Banks what he was mourning at Cape Cod, the loss of habitat, the overhunting right. that was going on at that time, the uh, all the forests that had maritime forests that had been cut down right. so that buildings were so called sanded. Uh, they would say, oh, the hotel over near Jockey's Ridge was sanded, which that meant, you know, there was sand in the rooms up to the <laughs> windowsills. And right. he he had seen all of that happen at Cape Cod. And I can't even imagine what he must have thought when he came here because it was so remote at that time. And right. so many birds and, you know, that, that was his thing. He was right. renowned as... Uh, a hunter, a hunting guide, uh, a chef. Uh, he wrote journal, uh, ornithology journal articles. Um, and the paper up at Chatham, there was a really interesting story that he published about mullet fishing at Hatteras. And he t described how they would drive the ponies out to pull the nets and uh, so he, you know, he had this great love for nature that I think uh, made him fall in love with the Outer Banks. Yeah, and his fingerprints were all over this place. Yeah. I mean, he was, got involved in local government, life-saving station, uh, construction was, of some of the buildings and yeah, houses. Yeah, the, he owned uh, two hotels here. 
He was the manager of the Pea Island and the Body Island Hunt Clubs, and so he was bringing people from Cape Cod to the Outer Banks. And, that's crazy. Yeah. And Body Island Hunt Club, do you think that's the same one that's behind Body Island right now? Uh, the, the lodge is now on the oceanfront in South Nagshead. It got moved. Okay. Um, so no, I don't think any of the okay. original buildings. Because there's a hunt club back behind the lighthouse. I just wasn't sure if it was. It may be. I don't remember. It may be part of it. No problem. Um, so the amazing part uh, of the story is how you weave real events with fictitious events. And do, do you want to go over a few parts of the story that are definitely true? Sure. Um, or I can tell you how I uh, twisted them a little bit. So, sure. for example, the rescue of the E.S. Newman um, is very famous. That was uh, the P. Island uh, life-saving station, which was the all-black station. Right. Um, and the men swam out to the wreck and brought people back. Saved all the people on board. And I think one guy did all of them. Did the, I think it the swim? Theodore, Theodore, yeah, uh, Meekins. Um, sorry, my history's a little rusty there. It's but fine. at any rate, so I'm trying to come up with a fictional rescue up at Chatham, and I called my cousin, who's been a surfer down here for since we were little kids, and I said do you ever ride a rip current out to a shipwreck? And he goes, yeah, all the time. <laughs> I mean, or out to surf. I'm sorry. Yeah. Do you ride the, the rip, to, I, will, to... I will vouch for that. A rip will pull you out yeah. <laughs> to the ocean and make it easier for you. Do you use it? You know, and he goes, yeah, absolutely. So, so, I, so I sort of took, you know, my foggy notion about the E.S. Newman rescue by right. the P. Island Lifesavers and right. had Gil swim out using a rip current to get out to a shipwreck. And so I started having fun yeah. making things up, but basing them on facts that make it, I hope, make it believable. Right. Um, so that, that was an example of one thing. Um, uh, the parts about Gilly in North Africa, uh, you know, that's all based on true stories right. and that was that was fun as I said earlier that was not in the book and it made me so sad not to have that did, did you find that after no I knew about it okay. I just didn't know fictionally with the timeline gotcha. of the story because the story is about when she's getting ready to go to North Africa right and I didn't and I wanted that departure to be the end of the book. Sorry to give anything away, but <laughs> right. but um, that seemed like a natural end point for the novel. And so then I didn't know how to get the World War II stuff in there. And then I thought, well, they they're gonna just imagine. And I think one of the one of the things. So I never thought this would get published because really? who am I? I don't know how to write fiction. <laughs> never done this. Uh, but you, you have published one other book, so it's not a total stretch. But fiction. And yeah. the last time I wrote anything fiction, fictionally was uh, when I was in the sixth grade, a short story, <laughs> right. 
which actually has echoes of this book, which I only remembered after it came out. So the short story I wrote when I was 11 was uh, about uh, children that camouflage this little shack in the woods by uh, bringing branches, fastening branches, and then there's a flood and they have to be, they need to be rescued, so they un unleash the branches and you can see the shack. Right. So uh, when I made up the part about the beach shanty called uh, Gill's Folly, uh, I had a great, great fun just imagining some thing that's camouflaged on right. the beach. Um, right. And I've always had this desire to have hideaways. Right. And uh, so that, that part was fun. So I started really allowing myself to imagine things. Um, right. But always tethered to the true story. Sure. Where were we going? Oh, we were talking about the true parts. Yeah, more true parts. Uh, so the, I know there was the faking box. and um... So the, the family believed uh, that, the Southern family believed that he and his Northern wife had twins who died at birth. I never could prove that, but it seemed to me, since that's what they thought, that I could make it so. Um, Did you ever try to track down her gravesite up there? Uh, no, I didn't. I have the records, you know, mm -hmm. I, I have all the dates and everything. Yeah. And I had actually made a timeline to try to keep it all straight. But, right. um, but the, the family believed that, that Gil had invented the faking box. And when I found out that wasn't true, but he did, uh, bring to the attention of the life-saving service that the, the lines were were uh, getting tangled because they were woven wrong. Right. Not that that's not very well said, but anyway. I, get it. anyway. I understood it, yeah. Um, and maybe that was just something that... But somebody invented a fake, the faking box, yeah. so I just oh, that, decided that to... possible too. Yeah. But I guess I was just thinking, you know, how uh, oral history gets passed down. <laughs> you know, details might get exaggerated or whatever, yeah. so yeah. I get it. And so uh, I didn't think that this book would be published, and so I wrote it to please myself. And so I ha would come up with things that were fascinating to me. For example, Patricia Highsmith, who wrote the Ripley novels, um, and he's a bad guy, but somehow you accept him and kind of get him you know you, you right. kind of get get what he's up to and some people would say well Gil wasn't such a nice person you know having two families and going back and forth and the way he just sort of allocated uh, his two wives to run these hotels for him while he's off fishing and hunting right. um, so I studied how do you make a character who maybe has some not so nice attributes, how do you make people get him, like him, if not necessarily like him, at least accept him as sure. a person. So I spent a lot of time thinking about that and reading. I wrote, read, read uh, two biographies of Patricia Highsmith, and then I read what she was reading when she was writing her book. So I kind of go overboard with, <laughs> with some of my... 
thinking. Um, and the other thing I was really interested in, partly because of my many hours of interviews with Gilly, the person who the Gilly character is based on, is how stories change, how people's recollections change, right. how your own memory changes over time and maybe something that you heard but didn't experience as a child you actually think happened to you, right. you know? And so um, the manner in which I chose to tell the story was my attempt at recreating how people think inside their heads and how they, the, the whole time someone else is talking, you know, you're sitting here thinking of your own stuff and meshing what you're hearing with your own memories and it becomes a whole nother thing. Right. And so I was very interested in that. I love Faulkner, so I was very interested in time, how you, how you depict the passage of time, how we think of time passing. I mean, if you told me it was 2015, I would probably say, yeah, probably is. <laughs> you know, uh, or if you say 1980 was 20 years ago, I'd probably go, yeah, it was. <laughs> right. So you had a chance to interview Gilly. Yes. And at a one, what point in the uh, story making did, did we lose Gilly? Um, so you started the story with Gilly, yes. and she passed away at some point. She died the same day my husband died. Really? And that was terrible. Uh, her caregiver called crying. Uh, we were in Chapel Hill, uh, and she called crying. I thought she had heard about my husband passing away. She thought I had heard about Gilly passing away, and we finally figured out no they both way. were gone. And so that's 2011, and yeah. you put the book out about a year and a half ago. Yeah. So, so you, yeah, you, about almost 10 years you were writing this book without her. Yeah. But you had a pretty good foundation. Yeah, essentially everything I had hoped to learn from her, I, you, you know, you got it. 10, over 10 years of talking to her yeah. and going through her trunks and her sister's trunk after. Her sister died, and uh, the family let you do that. Yeah, these were all older sisters, right? Yes, her sister who passed. She, uh, Gilly was the youngest of the four girls. Okay. Yeah, and there wasn't a big gap. It was. I had, but you know, in the in the book, and the book is not true, a hundred percent. Right. I I envisioned much older sisters, and then Gilly. But it wasn't like that. Uh, I, don't I, I must have misread that or misremembered yeah, that. I don't that. really remember now what the age difference or the gaps were, honestly. Okay. But they did let you uh, check yeah, things out. Yeah, you know, when okay. you're a younger person, they all seem old. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, oh, excellent. Uh, let's see, what else? Um, Some, some of the things, uh, it was interesting to me, some of the things from my, my life, how they got into the book. For example, I went to Randolph-Macon Women's College for a couple of years, and I met a girl 
not too long after my time in college. And she w- she trained Tennessee walkers. She trained bird dogs to hunt. And she hunted and uh, did taxidermy. And I just was fascinated by her. And right. so when I'm thinking about Gil and I'm trying to imagine his daily life, you know, what that would have been like. I knew that he loved birds and was really right. interested in birds. Right. And so I decided that he would, you know, be he, must in, have. <laughs> he, he would be into taxidermy. Yeah. And so that whole thread that goes through the book, uh, you know, that was interesting. And it probably, in now that you're saying this, it probably played well to the character because in real life, he was kind of a, you know, a man of many talents, right? And yeah. so why not load him up with some talents in the story yeah. to just kind of round out yeah. those skills? So, so I have him fiddling with the birds, dead birds, and she's sitting there. And, uh, and then uh, I knew a woman who uh, tatted lace. That was, I had to look that up. And uh, I will say throughout the book, I had to Google a few things. Yeah. <laughs> and I had to Google tatting. I had no idea that was a thing. But and, I'm sorry I interrupted you. And Keep es- going. And essentially, it's, it's like net making, only in miniature. Uh, and there's designs, yeah. and some people are trying to tell story, some kind of artwork, well, so, so to most, speak. Well, mostly from my recollection of lace tatting, uh, it would be, you know, a doily on a dresser or an Adam Kasser on the back of a chair or something like that. So I decided that she was going to try to tat things. Uh, and she tatted her whole wedding dress. She tatted her dress, <laughs> she tatted birds. So while he's, uh, you know, doing uh, taxidermy birds, she's tatting over top of dead birds, which sounds very strange, and I guess it is strange. But anyway, uh, as I said, I didn't think I was going to get this book published, so I was just having fun making things like that up. But, you know, but some strand of that came from my own life. Sure, why not? And, uh, and I guess that, you know, you live here in Manio, you live by the water. I'm sure you've met a few fishermen. <laughs> you could probably relate, relate a lot of this stuff. Uh, Dash the dog, do you know any good uh, Labrador retrievers around here? That... So that was a Chesapeake Bay retriever. Chesapeake retriever. And uh, we had one when I was right. uh, in college. And uh, I don't really know that that breed is that common at Cape Cod, but I decided it is now. It is now. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's excellent. Yeah. A- any other, and and um, I guess I'm skipping around, but do you have any projects, uh, any other writing projects or any other cool things you, you got lined up? I don't know if this will ever happen, and I'm not promising it will, but, you know, if I write another novel, I'm thinking something along the lines of... Uh, Peter Matheson's one of my favorite writers, and he wrote uh, three novels that then became a single novel, Shadow Country, and it's uh, you know three books about the same guy. And Marilyn Robinson has done the same thing with uh, four books about the same family, and right. and there's so much more that could be said about this particular family that's depicted in Between Tides. 
And uh, so um, I've encouraged people to suggest what point of view they would like to see another book. Um, some people say Maud, the wife here. Some people say Gil. Some people say they are dying to know what happened to Gilly in the war. And so right now the most I've committed to is um, I want to do some research about the hurricane of 1899, which was so bad that people at Hatteras floated their houses to Manio. They're still on Highway 64. And mm -hmm. that was the year that, that uh, Maud was determined to leave Hatteras and come and live in Manio. Um, and that was the condition that she made for marrying Gil, right. was that she could get uh, get from Hatteras Island and, and, to And do you think, is, is that little nugget a true part of the story? That, that part's true, and but I started thinking about how much did that 1899 That's where I was going next. Affect her desire, as apparently it affected a lot of people, like yeah. so much so that you float your house across the sound, right? Uh, and completely, you know, pull, pull up uh, your whole life. And so, I want to do some research on that hurricane. Um, uh, I've always been fascinated by Theodosia Burr, and I'm also fascinated by ghosts. And so, well, tell me about Theodosia Burr. I'm unfamiliar. So I have this idea that um, maybe so Theodosia Burr was Aaron Burr's daughter, and he was tried for treason and had just come back from exile in Europe. Her little boy had just died at age 10 of malaria. She was married to the governor of South Carolina. She gets on essentially what we would think of as a charter, chartered boat uh, to cut, go from uh, South Carolina up to New York to see her father. And it's during the War of 1812. Uh, the British stop her just off Hatteras before a storm and give her safe passage to continue on to see her father, and that's the last anyone saw of her. The and, ship probably sank. And there's a famous local story about Nagshead Woods, and a woman who lived in the woods, and Dr. Poole from Elizabeth City, who had one of the first unpainted aristocracy cottages over in Nagshead, right. sees this portrait in her house in the woods and believes it's Theodosia Burr and wants to know where she got it and so forth. So so there's that whole Theodosia gotcha. story, what happened to her. So I kind of am thinking that the little boy's ghost comes up here looking for his mother and decides to latch on to Maud, who <laughs> has not had a boy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, you know, so whether any of that will right. actually become a book. I don't know. Right. But that's what I'm thinking about. Have you been bitten by the bug a little bit? Uh, the once, once I got past my terror of making things up, uh, right. yeah, I think, I think I would enjoy doing something right. else fictionally. It gives you a lot of freedom, and historical fiction sort of satisfies both parts of me, you know, wanting to know right. what really happened and then the why of what happened, you get to make up. The motivations, yeah. the, um, the interior thoughts, uh, 
you can explore through fiction, which you cannot do through nonfiction. Right. I have a saying, uh, some stories are true and some stories are better. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, sometimes the truth is boring and it's just not that exciting. So sometimes it's better just to add, add your own twist to it. I like that saying. Um, I think I'm getting close to wrapping it up. Anything I'm missing? Anything we want to talk about? Of, uh, uh, any of the other true parts. I liked, um, you know, I'm reading the book, and it was almost the at the the last paragraph of every chapter. There's some kind of foreshadowing, and I I said to myself, "That's foreshadowing." I know that's foreshadowing. <laughs> and the next chapter, it's like, "Doggone it, she did it again." There it is again. Uh, so I thought that was uh, very good and very clever. Um, a lot of symbolism, as you know, like I said, it's a very poetically written book, so the symbolism, not really. Um, well, I mean, it was, it was, it's, it's well written, the symbolism. Um, so I, I definitely appreciate that. And like I've said before, the fact that, uh, I've lived and worked here for 25 years, I can definitely relate to the history and the water and, you know, all the, all the goings on around here. It's definitely very cool. One thing that you mentioned, John, uh, the book is different than what you thought it would be and yeah. I was a little concerned because the publisher marketing people like it has to have a woman on the cover and uh, I just I wasn't sure if men would be interested in reading it especially with the the cover and Gigi Roselle down at Buxton Village Book said about half of her readers are men. And she said all their windsurfers that come down love to read. And really, she said, you know, that men definitely have loved the book. And I've had uh, fishermen friends say I nailed it, which is a great compliment. <laughs> yeah. Um, another really great friend of mine who commercially fished for years and then taught history at COA for many years. And he calls me up regularly and says, how did you know this? And where did you get that? And I haven't heard that expression in 40 years. And, right. and so, um, you know, the, the, the hunting and the fishing and the life-saving and, you know, those kinds of things were really uh, one of my favorite things to write. Nice. And I guess, you know, having written that first uh, nonfiction book, it's called Mantio... A Roanoke Island town? Mm -hmm. Did I get that right? Yes. Okay. I mean, you must have had just all the research you did for that must have laid a nice foundation for a good part of the second book, right? Yeah, that's true. And that book's been out of print for about 20 years, so a lot of people have encouraged me to reprint that. And, yeah, uh, I was surprised. Um, <laughs> there's a couple hardcovers out there for sale for about $400 on Amazon, <laughs> if <right>. anybody's interested. <laughs> But I think I, uh, one of the local bookstores said if you know they could get it for you, um, if if you so, I, I would like to uh, try to dig it up. I love Manio, yeah. so uh, they would definitely be cool, especially looking at the old pictures and everything. Um, um, I'm trying to think. You know, the, I think one of my big regrets is that I didn't finish it in time for Gilly to read it. Mm. 
I would have really liked to. That would have been cool. For her to have read it. But her daughter and her granddaughter came to the uh, book launch party and the event at the Arts Council. Wow. Did they live locally? No, they live in Pennsylvania. Gotcha. So that really was special yeah. to me to see That's them. That's very cool. To see them there. And I took uh, them into the house that they called Over Home. Um, Gilly had not been in that house since she was a child. And so. Is that the, I'm sorry, is that the one next to the Crow Tanner? Yes, next to Crow Tanner Cottage. Crow Tanner Cottage. And uh, so when I took them in to see the house, uh, Gilly was going through going, oh, this is my history. And then her little granddaughter goes, this is my history too. <laughs> <laughs> she was about six at the time, yeah. uh, which is how old Gilly was when her father yeah, died. And so, yeah. you know, uh, this uh, black belly plover that's sitting on my coffee table is, uh, was carved by Gil. Wow. And I found it on eBay, and so I want to make sure that Gilly's granddaughter gets that yeah. once I'm gone. How did you find that? I Google that family kind of regularly and just see <laughs> right. if anything new comes up, you know. And, and you saw a link for eBay. Uh-huh. That is crazy. Yeah. So that, that's pretty special to me. Yeah, that is amazing. Um. I, one thing that was interesting to me, um, and I guess if you're a hunter or a decoy collector, you would know this, but I didn't know it, that people shot shorebirds, these tiny little birds, like why? <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, we were, before we started recording, we were talking about that author, David... Soselsky. Soselsky, I, I always butcher up his last name, but yeah, he's written articles about, you know, back... 1900 or something, 1920s, they were just devastating the shorebird population in North Carolina. But yeah. So so that was a surprise to me. I didn't really get that. I still don't get it. (laughs) Yeah, I I think it goes back to the outer bankers and the subsistence. I mean, they were just hand to mouth, you know, just, you know, grabbing oysters and clams out of the water, grabbing fish, grabbing whatever bird flew. It was fair game. Shorebird hunting, I think, was largely, uh, well, it was for sport, and also satisfied that craze for feathers and women's hats. Right, that was another big thing, Mm -hmm. yeah. So, you know, in some ways they did what they had to just to make ends meet. Yeah. Whether it was making money by selling stuff or putting stuff on the on the table, you know? Yeah, well, another thing that was uh, interesting to me when I went down to Hatteras and uh, a member of the family down there uh, has said, you know, the people here aren't going to like your book. And, uh, and I said, <laughs> well, for the same reason that Blythe didn't like your family, <laughs> you know, uh, sorry, you know, that, that was... Maybe this doesn't need to be in the story, in your podcast, but anyway, I, I can cut that out if you need yeah. me. But yeah, I'm a little shocked though because I mean, it's a couple of generations ago. I think you need to kind of let go. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah. I'm not. I well, can't. I know, can't control I think, my past. Well, there's a there's a thing in the book, uh, Kenneth Keeter's Yopon Eaters, and you know, I'm from Virginia. I heard that phrase and thought it was interesting. 
but it's a derogatory uh, but comment. But it's derogatory. Yeah. 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 And uh, but having lived in Manny, I, I remember one time um, a friend of mine, she and I rented a skiff from the causeway, and we were going to go to Nears for lunch and wine cheese, and I had uh, a Manny ball cap on and when we got to the dock I took the hat off before we went in and David Stick said you have to write about that why did you feel like you needed to take your hat Manio hat off to go and eat and lunch and wine cheese I was like really David (laughs) so uh you know so there the um you know ever since I moved here, which was shortly after college, you know, I've just heard about, you know, Manio and Wanchies and right. Hatteras and, uh, yeah. the, you know, the barrier that the water is for Nags Head people to come to Manio or whatever. And, uh, yeah. Anyway. People are territorial. It's, yeah. I find it amusing. It's unfortunate, but uh, it is what it is. In, yeah. uh, in episode three, I'm talking to um, Wikey Wise and you know his grandparents lived in Nags Head Woods back when Nags Head Woods was a community. Right. And and he's very careful to mention that there was three kind of people. There was the 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 outer bankers, you know, that lived there all the time, and then there was the planters who came from inland. Mm-hmm. And I think then he kind of groups the other ones as the business people from Norfolk or something like that, or Virginia Beach, whatever. So he's he's. he's He's very clear. There was three distinct, mm-hmm. you know, groups of people. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. Sometimes I think they got along and sometimes they didn't. Right. <laughs> but, you yeah. know, I think it's kind of the nature of the beast sometimes. Yeah. Uh, don't know what else your listeners might be interested in. Yeah, I think that's I think that's pretty good. I mean, I could go on about the neighborhood here and the history, but that kind of gets us way off base. Um, but I think we talked about the story pretty well. Um, I, th- I think we yeah, I think we covered I mean, all the bases. Yeah. We talked about origination. Talked about Gilly, uh, Gill. The families, the true parts. I think we knocked. I think we did a pretty good job. Um, I did talk to. I talked to people who knew the family, and uh, a friend of mine said his mother used to go and sit with Maud, and uh, you know the comment about uh, "Let's go kill a chicken in case, Mister." Lodge comes home. <laughs> oh, yeah, I do, I do remember that part. Yeah, and, and, and so, so some, she, some of those kinds of things were just, you know, one person said this one little memory that got in the book. And yeah, and so I actually, I remember, I, I was rereading the book this last week, and I do recall that part. And so, so Maud was his uh, Outer Banks wife. Yes. And, and she must have been a very loyal wife because he would just disappear. Well, one, he would disappear to go to Cape Cod, but also he would just disappear to go to the hunt clubs and just, and she never knew if he was going to come home or not. And, but she felt it was her duty to kill a chicken and have something ready for dinner. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, it was interesting to me how, um, 
Triangle House was renowned for its its uh, food, and this family, um, uh, one of the daughters had a hotel on the beach, the Hotel Arlington, and they had a restaurant that was very famous, and um, so they were known for their hospitality, and it, and it was interesting to me to come across uh, one of the sisters' handwritten recipes from the Tranquil House. That was really nice, nice. really nice find. That was in uh, the sister's trunk. Wow. So some of those kinds of things. So the, you know, just the... Uh, I think it's very cool that they opened up, the family opened things up to you to just thumb through and look at. That was so much fun. Right. It was so much fun. There were, you know, deeds from uh, here and at, at Cape Cod. You know, he owned a cranberry bog up there. And, you know, there was just right. all kinds of random information in there that right. they had. In their Have you trunks. heard that? I swear I think I saw something that there was a brief cranberry industry on, you know, in North Carolina. Maybe not here, but in North Carolina. Maybe. I but think. I... I I don't think it, I don't know why it died on the vine, but it died. They had, they used to have uh, turtle corrals and stuff like that up in Wanchi's. They had. For turtle soup, right? Yeah. Yeah, I saw that. To send, you know, that was a commodity that was shipped yeah, out. Of I did there. see that until they became threatened and they had to put the uh, right. kibosh on that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. But, um, uh, what are some other things that were in the trunk? In Gilly's home, which was across the street from the elementary school that I described in the story, she had to miss school to go right. to her father's funeral. Right. Um, and a lot of people have said that, that the funeral scenes are really right on. You know, if you grew up in the South, that was... Or how how so? Or just or like, like the, uh, the, the after the party? The gossip and, you know, people just standing around talking about the dead person. You and, know, and gossiping. While they're and, eating and, yeah, right. right. Um, and, you know, the gillies under the table uh, while the, everybody's talking. And, of course, I spent a lot of time under our dining room table. I loved it. <laughs> right. You know, and I can remember very vividly that I could just walk under there, you know. Right. It was little. I remember that. Um, I'm trying to think. Um, this was kind of a, a fun story that's on my website. Um, advice not given. I mean, I'm sorry, uh, advice taken or not. And so David Stick advised me when I was trying to write a short story about Theodosia Burr. And he told me about um, how he had tried to write fiction. And he said, you just need to forget it. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. And uh, so I did. But, but you dove right time. in. You, you've been to writing clinics or... Well, I, you know, I had started trying to write this story in 2001. And, 
you know, I was freelancing full time then and teaching yoga and busy doing other stuff and right. was trying to do this on the side. And so by 2009, uh, Sterling Webster, that owned the Ramada Inn, had introduced me to his brother who was here visiting. And I ran into them in Manning at Booksellers, and he said, you need to go to this Key West Literary Seminar, Angel. And that, that year, it was going to be historical fiction as the topic. And so um, I talked to my husband about it and decided to give myself a year to try to see if I could write fiction. And did took my first writing class that year, and uh, they were very encouraging. Cool. for me to carry on and to finish the book and uh, a lot of great mentors there yeah over because I continued to go back every year or so um, and studied with uh, Lee Smith took a poetry workshop one year um, and yeah I, I mean it wouldn't have happened without Key West Literary Seminar right. really wouldn't have um and you know some of the pe people I met in the workshop, not to mention the the teachers. It yeah. was great. Right. So that that part was fun. But there again, you know, I go to Key West. I have no idea if I'm gonna. I basically thought if they say hang it up, I was gonna quit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's so, the door. You yeah, would have said okay. Yeah. I was so terrified. Oh my gosh, I was so scared. And. It, um, I was set the next year to take a workshop with Marilyn Robinson, and that's when Daniel got, got cancer. And so that shut things down for quite a few right. years. Right. Understandable. Yep. What do they call it? Um, there's there's a internet word for, for people that uh, don't feel like... Uh, Oh, imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome, yeah. yes. Oh, oh, I definitely have that. Yeah, I don't think I'm a real writer. <laughs> still not a real writer. <laughs> Got two books published, still faking it. <laughs> Lots of Outer Banks magazine stories. That was fun. Coastal Times. But, um, Are you still working with some of these local publications? No, I quit freelancing and teaching yoga when Daniel got sick and just haven't gone back to it. Uh, we had never done any maintenance on their house that we built uh, 35 years ago. Wow. And it needed attention, so I've spent 10 years trying to patch things up around right. here. I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. We had a house 20-plus uh, years in Southern Shores, bought it brand new, but after 20 years, right, things just falling apart. Yeah. We patched it up and sold it. <laughs> Moved into another project. That was probably wise. <laughs> that would probably really, I should have probably done the same thing here. But, you know, uh, that's also a form of creativity, you know, that right. I've enjoyed uh, trying to figure out uh, not just my style of writing, but my style of living. Right. You know, how do I want to shape each day, what do I want to do with each day, and yeah. Good deal. Well, let's wrap it up. Um, okay. Angel, I appreciate your time. Uh, this, the book is great. Uh, where do you recommend people buy the book? Uh, 
I think all of our local bookstores are amazing. Um, and the local that's Outer Banks. Would be uh, Island Bookstore from starting from the north, yeah. coming on to Manio, Downtown Books, and Sam and Winston in Manio, and then uh, uh, Buxton Village Books down in right. Hatteras, and Books to Be Read down at Ocracoke. Those are all just great places to. Nice. Uh, you know, they they know their books. And Excellent. Yeah, I love downtown Manio bookstore. It's just a great place. Yeah. I'm usually stuck at the table with all the local stuff. <laughs> exactly. Because <laughs> I love the local stories. Yeah. But, yeah. Well, thanks for this time. I appreciate it. and uh, Thank you, John. My pleasure. Have a good one.